You're listening to Advice from Your Advocates, a show where we provide elder law advice to professionals who work with the elderly and their families. Welcome to our very first Advice from Your Advocates. Uh, This is going to be a webinar series and hopefully a podcast that's going to uh, talk to interesting people in the long-term care field and in the estate planning field to really get to the heart of some of the issues that we're all going to be facing as we age. And we expect this to be a a really great series. This is our very first one. I'm uh, certified elder law attorney, Bob Manor. Our guest today is uh, the administrator or director at the Lodges of Durand, uh, Jerry Birchmeyer. Thank you, Jerry, for coming here. Our title today, our topic today, is what does long-term care look like in a post-pandemic world? And it seems appropriate based on our topic and just life these days is that uh, Jerry can't be with me in studio today. She was originally supposed to be with me in studio and uh, we're gonna have to adapt because of an exposure, which seems to happen every, uh, you know, we've had this in our office. We've had uh, times where we had to, you know, kind of either quarantine or make sure we shut down to visitors and things like that. So this is uh, this is a sign of the time, isn't it, Jerry? It sure is, Bob. It sure is. So, Jerry, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself first and your organization, which we've had great experiences with the Lodges of Duran. So you can kind of just tell us a little bit about uh, your organization and, and, uh, and what you do. Sure. Well, my name is Jerry Birchmeyer. I'm the administrator here at the Lodges of Durand. Um, We have an assisted living, independent living, and then we have a secured memory care unit where we handle um, our dementia residents here. We handle each each disease progress, each stage of the disease here from mild to to the difficult system, so disease process. Um, We have a locked and secured unit where we have wanderers here that can also wander around and be in their own home-like environment, but also remain safe in in our building. Um, We have an outside area also that uh, we are able to let our residents go outside to get the natural vitamin D that they need um, when the weather is nice. Um, that is also locked and secured here at the Lodges of Durand. Um, We take great pride in our memory care building. Uh, We have a lot of training for our staff here in education with uh, memory care and how to handle um, disease progression. Uh, We also, not so much with the COVID times, but we do education to to the community um, to try to teach um, everybody about the disease progression and how to handle it and how to plan for the disease. It's a interesting you talk about the educational uh, aspect of it. Uh, it's been about two years since we've had a lot of in-person education. And as you know, Jerry, we do a lot of that. Uh, we had our very first uh, uh, in-person education event that was well attended yesterday. So I don't know if that means we're turning the corner or it's just people are desperate for this information. So uh, let's get right into the topic, if you will. So it's been about two years that we've been going through this global pandemic. 
And, uh, you know, this has been a big impact in particular on certain industries and long-term care industry has been one of those that has a particularly big impact. And we all see the news and things like that. And um, so what do you see as the lasting effects or the lasting issues that we're going to have to deal with as a result of um, the last two years and getting past this pandemic? For us, it's a lot of the mental decline, um, the mental status changes, um, the disease progress of declining faster at a more rapid rate. And and what do you what do you attribute that to? Why would you uh, is there is that just more of the less being able to interact with, uh, you know, with folks or or, um, what what other attributes might that come from? It's a whole change in environment. And anytime you change, have an environment change for anybody in the disease process of dementia, um, triggers a decline. And, you know, without that socialization, without that interaction, um, we see a big decline. We have to isolate, especially um, when we have to isolate somebody to their room and they don't even have the socialization of other residents or the care staff, um, you see a decline. You know, that's interesting. It kind of goes into my next question, which is uh, one of the things that I look at and I'll often talk to families about is isolation is a real thing. And um, well, I never discourage folks from getting care in place. You know, they talk about this in the long-term care industry, aging in place. And everybody says that's the, the best option. And it many times is the best option, meaning being able to stay in your home or maybe being able to stay in your child's home or something like that. Um, but uh, there's still isolation there. And that's the thing is that there's not a lot of um, uh, social interaction. There's not a lot of activity. There's not a lot of uh, things that kind of stimulate that parts of your brain that's going to, um, you know, sort of uh, help prevent some of that deterioration that you talked about. And so even though for a situation where you're in a community like yours, um, it's, you know, that kind of shows a little bit of the difference before and after. Uh, that's actually my next question is, what do you see as some of the things that um, were concerning you before the pandemic two years ago that now either has changed and made it either better or worse or have amplified some of the concerns that you had? I think the biggest change for us is two years ago before the pandemic, you know, people more were more worried about the disease itself um, versus the comorbidities that are coming onto it because of the disease. Um, you know, like I said, with the mental status, the rapid decline, um, the isolation, um, all of that plays into a factors of this. It's not, it's more of, um, you know, isolation and precautions and um, more COVID driven than it is disease driven. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I I found that to be true too, is that a lot of the decisions now are being made based on COVID rules rather than some of the more standard operating procedures or best practices that we knew about dealing with uh, even the flu and, and other, you know, things. I remember coming and visiting at the lodges or any of the other care facilities. And if there was uh, a little bit of a flu epidemic, there would always be a sign on the door. There would always be the, the uh, hand sanitizer and the, the, you know, the careful things that uh, were there. But it seems like, well, those precautions were in place. Um, they weren't driving uh, the standard, you know, the operating procedures. They weren't driving everything. 
Uh, would you say some of the sort of restrictions and rules are are really more driving some of the well, we have to do it this way. It's you know by either mandate or just expected practices these days. Absolutely. Even as far as to sending a residence um, to the hospital, um, it, it's all changed and it's all different. It's all, you know, based on COVID. Is there an exposure? What are the signs and symptoms? Are the hospital going to treat them or are they not going to treat them? You know, um, a simple fall that we've seen two years ago from the before the pandemic, you know, went, got sent out, got x-rays is completely different now. Now it's, you know, let's test them first. Let's, you know, see where they're if they're having any signs or symptoms before they even actually treat the actual um, problem. You know, that's interesting. And then uh, we were talking earlier about something that I think is always an issue and always has been an issue, but now it's so pronounced and that's the staffing issue. And I know we always try to find the best people and the best caregivers in your case, and, uh, and uh, it's always challenging and always has been. So this is not anything new and not anything that you're not prepared for, but maybe talk to that a little bit about, you know, the staffing issues and where we see that going in the future. Absolutely. Staffing has been a big concern, especially these past two years. Um, even just the process of onboarding new staff is completely different. Um, you know, we got to get infectious control trained. You know, we got to be able to make sure that these guys are mentally able to handle the isolation, you know, because as caregivers now, not only are you taking the oath to be the caregiver, you're taking the oath to be the family, is to be the advocate, um, you know, to be the whole the, the, for the whole person versus this the caregiver. Yeah, that's uh, and and uh, do you see any uh, any change in that in the near future? Do you do you see any progress on that, or are we just going to have to adjust our practices a little bit um, in the coming years here? Um, I feel that we're going to have to adjust our practices a little bit in the coming years um, to learn that this is our new norm. Um, you know, and be able to plan and educate, um, you know, and train. You know, and as a uh, administrator, I, I, I like that approach. Um, I have a friend of mine that talks about so many people um, are wanting to just have it snap back to normal, like a rubber band. We're going to stretch out that rubber band and it's going to snap back to normal. And I think the reality is that's it's not that's not where we're going. That's not what what reality is going to be there. It's not going to go back now. That's it's going to doesn't mean it's necessarily all bad either. There's going to be some very positive developments that we had. Um, talk about the ability sometimes to even stay in touch more with loved ones um, and not have distance be an issue and how we may be adapted to some technology and things like that to make it so yes. that we're actually able to be more communicative like we are right now. Yes, absolutely. Even with um, doctors and services and providers like hospice and home care, um, we are adapted to, you know, Zoom meetings and telehealth visits, um, um, maybe getting more of those so they have that those eyes on their, you know, residents and their patients and being able to help with, you know, the care of them. Isn't that amazing? I have a, a friend of mine who's a, 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 a family doctor and, uh, and uh, almost immediately they switched over to a lot of, uh, you know, telehealth meetings. And I think for the first part, that's all they did. And then yep. they kind of shifted to a, 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 where they'll go back and forth. And uh, some days of the week, he's, he's completely remote. And some days of the week, he's seeing patients in person. 
And uh, interesting how quickly that could be adapted. And I think a lot of these things that are probably advancements were would have been resisted for many more years had we not had the necessity not been there. Absolutely. Even as an administrator and a caregiver, like we have to adapt our thinking of, okay, we are the eyes and the ears of the physician that we are doing the telehealth visit with, you know, so we have to learn how, how they listen for things and how they see things so we can perceive that to them. That's really interesting. I just did a, um, a court hearing uh, yesterday, I think it was. Uh, we have our producer, Savannah, behind the scenes here, so you might hear her voice in the background as she asks some questions in a few minutes. But uh, we just had our uh, a Zoom court hearing, and it's so much more efficient, to be honest with you. Uh, in the, uh, you know, I remember sitting in court sometimes for two hours before our case is called, and it's so inefficient and so, uh, ex- you know, more expensive and just inefficient for the clients and to be able to go on at a set time, sit in my office, not have travel time, not have, you know, all of that, have my clients sitting next to me if they want and uh, be able to efficiently, you know, do government processes. Um, You know, there are some definitely advancements that we've made as a result of that. Absolutely. How do you feel that um, sort of the population that we both serve, which is, you know, uh, typically an older population. And so um, historically or traditionally, the thought is, well, maybe sometimes older folks don't get uh, quite as uh, acclimated to technology. Uh, how do you feel that there's been, an, uh, uh, or do you feel that, they've, uh, that there's been a, um, uh, a way to adapt or that a lot more folks that are maybe wouldn't have used technology as much have now learned a new skill that can be really valuable and help them communicate and connect with their families. Oh, absolutely. I think that it's almost been forced, you know, for them to be able to have this technology and be able to learn from this technology. And that's, again, where we come off as caregivers, but we also come off as family because we're helping them to learn that knowledge. Um, You know, so they had that interaction and they are able to contact with families. Um, You know, two years before the pandemic, you know, you didn't see the um, residents around with their cell phones and their iPads, you know, and now it's almost on admission that they're coming with that stuff. It is kind of amazing that, uh, you know, for a lot of years, a lot of my clients would say, well, I don't really do computers. I don't really do maybe even email, things like that. Now they carry a computer around in their purse. So they carry a computer around in their wallet and they're, you yes. know, they've just uh, adapted like the rest of us. So it's great. Yeah. And they know about FaceTime and they're, they're wanting to FaceTime with their loved ones. Yeah. And, and that's where I think it can be you know, a real advantage because I know a lot of times, um, you know, folks aren't always able to, you know, drive out to Durand or drive out to wherever the person is, or maybe they're in several states. And we've been, uh, my my uh, nieces and nephews are spread out all over the place, but they've been able to communicate with their grandparents and things like that uh, a lot more readily because of, you know, this more increased use of technology. Even for myself, I've had to learn, you know, how to use FaceTime and duo calling and, you know, just to be able to keep that contact for our residents and families. Yeah. And and how have you adapted as far as uh, helping to train your staff 
to help the residents um, with the use of technology? Uh, has there been any training for them to help them sort of uh, uh, introduce them to things that are gonna be uh, useful for that? Absolutely. Uh, we have a wonderful activities department here um, who is, we kind of call her our IT guru. So she does a lot of education and training with the families and the staff. We also have programs like Life Loop that helps us keep um, con constant contact, which is almost like its own app for families to be able to send pictures and us to send pictures and messages to them too. Um, just a lot of education. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and go for some of the things that we have to be aware of or some of the red flags or concerns that I think that uh, while we had these before, the pandemic has sort of uh, escalated that. And that is that uh, at Manor Law Group, we've noticed that uh, a lot of families, especially early on, but, um, uh, you know, continuing have either uh, uh, tried to or had an opportunity to care for their parents or their uh, older loved ones in their homes or in the child's home. And while that can be a great option, um, I, I wanna kind of talk about some of those red flags that we see to say, okay, uh, we have to look at either maybe bringing in some outside help or maybe looking at a care uh, setting like uh, like the lodges or any of the other uh, you know good places out there. But um, can you kind of talk us through some of the red flags that you see in working with families in that situation to say, okay, start thinking about these things or start being aware of or being observant of certain things that um, maybe tell you that the uh, that the older person or the senior is not safe enough or not getting enough interaction or enough care. Sure. It kind of runs along the line of, you know, burnout. You know, when you have your loved one at home with you, you are not only the son, the daughter, or the sister, the brother, the mom, the dad, you are the caregiver. You're the med pastor. Um, you know, you're the one that are in charge for 24 seven, you know, when do you get to rest? You know, are they safe at night when you're sleeping? Are they up wandering around? Are they in the kitchen with, you know, open utensils, you know, simple things that, you know, you may not think about, you know, is there a knife in the cupboard that they could get to, or could they get out the door and, you know, in this weather, get down the road and, you know, with no shoes or no socks on, no coat on, you know, and get cold. It's very important that, you know, you watch for those signs. Are you getting burnt out? Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, you, you said a mouthful there. That was a whole lot of uh, good advice. It's, you know, things we look at just to kind of break that down. And when we're talking to our clients about this or talking with the families, um, a lot of times that caregiver is the spouse, meaning also an older person, maybe, you know, the, the caregiver is in their seventies or eighties or nineties. And right. so one of the things that I'm sure, you know, this statistic is that, when we have a spouse with dementia or Alzheimer's or anything like that, and we have a caregiver spouse, it's the caregiver spouse that dies first most of the time. And, and, and we can kind of understand why that would be. They're the one that is maybe not getting enough sleep, maybe not taking care of themselves, maybe trying to you know, provide 24 hours worth of care and, um, and you know, the stress and anxiety is all on their shoulders. So that was one of it is the, the burnout, the caregiver burnout, the frankly inability to do that. The second thing you mentioned was the wandering. And so whenever, when we have a client and the family comes in and say, well, we wanna keep them at home. I say, great. One of the things I always ask is, all right, well, 
Has she wandered? Has has there been any wandering away at night during the day? Uh, you know, at a grocery store, you know, whatever it is. And then the other one, I have two other ones that I look at as red flags. One is um, dehydration. If they've been to the hospital for dehydration and one time maybe, and then they go back again and it's dehydration again or not eating properly or things like that. Um, uh, or, you know, worst case scenario, and this is awful bed sores, you know, things like that. Means we just need a little, in my view, in my strong opinion is we need a different or higher level of care than they're able to get. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they can't be in their home, but they're gonna need more caregivers, higher level of care if those red flags are happening. Absolutely. And then sometimes you have to, you know, be very cautious of when you start seeing some aggression, um, especially to the spouse, you know, um, it, it's very mentally taxing for the caregiver as well. It's so tough when we see aggression because sometimes we've got, you know, couples that have been married for 50, 60 years, or we have the dad or mom that is your dad or mom. And I'm sure through the years, there's been times where there's been arguments. And so, and it, and, and it doesn't, you know, it's hard to recognize that this is, uh, this is part of the brain functioning. It's part of their inability for executive decision-making and that it's the disease. It is not their personality now. They're not just getting angry or grumpy with you. They actually don't have the ability to do that. And I think it's very hard for spouses in particular, but kids also to, acknowledge, to recognize that this isn't just them being uh, stubborn. Uh, because I think a lot of families, especially spouses, will think, ah, he's always been stubborn. Well, it's a little different than that now because of the level of aggression that, you know, sometimes we're seeing there. Absolutely. And then the level of a facility or a, an assisted living or skilled nursing, um, you know, they have that ability to have like senior wellnesses group come in and they have a couple of different doctors that can look at different medications versus being able to take, you know, the spouse or the kids just taking the abuse and letting the abuse get further and further. The one thing I'd like to give people a heads up on is when there is a start of aggression, we really need to make sure that we address that and get to the doctor, you know, get to a setting that's going to make it less likely that there's going to be aggression. Um, and maybe you can talk to this because um, uh, what we find is if we don't, if we don't get in front of that, and now next thing you know, we have a police report or we have a, a ER visit where they talk about the aggression. It's gonna be a lot harder to find a good placement if your record, if you have a police record or a ER record that says that you're aggressive or that you, you could hurt people or something like that, that's gonna be harder to find a, a placement in a, an appropriate care facility. So we really need to get in front of that. So uh, what is your experience on, on dealing with that type of a thing? Absolutely. Um, so often I get, you know, by the time they get to that aggression, you know, that they they want to just get them into a facility, get them into a facility. But, you know, it, it takes steps to get into a facility and planning and, you know, into a skilled nursing facility. You know, when you're using your insurance, you know, for that, you have to have a three night hospital stay. You have to have a certain meet a certain criteria with called the level of care with the state of Michigan to be able to even enter the doors to that facility or a facility like us. You know, you need to be able to make sure that we have the right 
you know, equipment here and being able to care for this person. The medications are here before they come in and we change, do an environment change for them. So it's very important that they are planning this as the minute they see this change of aggression or change of behavior with their loved one, um, you know, because it's not always easy as, you know, well, we had an incident and now we're in the ER and we need to go to some uh, facility right now. Absolutely. That's a very good point that I do think sometimes families believe that they're able to, uh, you know, once they can make the decision, they're able to snap their fingers and say, well, we love uh, Duran Senior Care. Or we love the lodges. So we're just going to call them up and go there. That's not the way it works. Right. 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 Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's one of the things that I, I really think there are ways and it's one of the ways that we actually work with families. Sounds kind of funny for a law office to be working with families this way, but we have care coordinators that we can help try to get in front of this. And the idea is that um, trying to make sure we get there before we get that police report, before we get that ER report, things like that. Because sometimes if you think about how the brain works, if you wake up and there's this stranger in your house and because you don't recognize your spouse anymore, which happens very frequently, and now there's a stranger in your house, wouldn't you get aggressive if you woke up and you were disoriented and you see this strange person in your house and it can't be your husband because your husband's not that old. You're, you know, your mindset is you're in your 30s or 20s or whatever, and there's no way that old man could be your husband or that you're, you know, your wife or whatever. And so trying to get in front of that before it gets too far along. And sometimes it's just a matter of changing the environment, making sure that we have we don't have those triggers, that we don't have those things so that we never get to that point of that high aggression. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, that's with, we see a lot of problems with, you know, wanting to keep their loved one in their own home is that their own home can be a trigger. Absolutely. Good point. Yeah. So one of the things, how often do we hear people say that they uh, didn't, uh, that they're always constantly saying they want to go home and they say, mom, you are home. <laughs> one of the things we've learned is you don't need to argue with somebody that has dementia. You don't need to keep trying to convince them you are home, you are home. You just kind of move on and distract to another conversation. Or um, another thing is uh, if they're asking for deceased relatives, we don't have to remind them and make them go through the grief again that they that their dad died maybe 50 years ago. But you know, the, they they we don't have to, you know, we just can distract and kind of move on to the next conversation. So Absolutely. That's one thing that we try to educate our staff here is when they are having those moments, you need to live in those moments with them. Right. That's that's great. I like the way they say that. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Absolutely. Like you said, when they are having a behavior and they want a loved one or they they want to go home, they want to go home. They Can you please call my sister? Can you please call my sister? You know, we are trained, you know, as dementia um, practitioners that, you know, you need to live in that moment with them. You know, oh, you know, our, our sister went to the store. She'll be back in a little bit, you know, and talk to them about it um, versus saying, no, you know, so-and-so passed away. She's not here anymore. You know, that triggers even a an escalated behaviors and aggressiveness and, you know, can, can inhibit behaviors that would last, you know, all night long um, versus living in that moment with them. And, you know, yes, you know, our sister went out, she'll be back or, you know, or be the sister, you know, I'm here right now. What do you need? Um, I remember when my mom was going through this, that she would say, uh, ask about her sister a lot. And my, my sister, you know, her daughter came up with a great answer for it, which was, oh, oh, uh, your sister's uh, with your mom. 
because you know they're both passed on. And so I thought that was a great answer to say, you know, well, they're they're both in heaven. They're, but she didn't say that part. She just said, oh, don't worry about you know uh, your, your sister. She's with your mom, and that you know she was being honest too. <laughs> so I thought yeah. that was a sweet uh, sweet way to deal with that. Absolutely. Um, so, well, uh, you mentioned something I thought uh, that I really liked, which is the certified dementia practitioner. I saw that you you have that credential, um, and that's something that we've had a lot of our staff uh, go through and get that that certification of certified dementia practitioner. Can you talk a little bit about your organization and and what you try to do to make sure that you're you know training and doing the best that you can? A little bit more about the lodges of Durand and, and your background. Absolutely. Um, I'll start with my background. So I have, um, I started off as a nurse, uh, started off in the ER, went to an ortho neuro, um, found my love for the aging population, and then came to skilled nursing for a while. And then after skilled nursing became an administrator. Um, I did admissions a lot. So I got to go out to the different hospitals, meet different, you know, networks like Manor Law and um, build contacts and help our elderly population. Um, so, you know, one thing that I've learned along my history is that, you know, like we're doing now, education is where the, where you start with this disease process. Um, so, with that history, it made me even trigger more to learn about dementia and the different steps because dementia is one big umbrella. Um, so what I like to do um, for our staff and even our families is we like to do a dementia training to where you can actually see what it's like to have dementia. Um, a normal loud noise to you and I is just a loud noise and we go on about our day. And a loud noise to somebody with dementia, you know, like an alarm going off or a doorbell ringing um, can trigger a behavior. And that loud noise is amplified 10 times for somebody with dementia. Um, you know, so making them understand what it's like to have dementia has helped our training tremendously to have and to care for our residents. Um, just something simply as knowing that, you know, they have peripheral vision. They can only see in front of them. They can't see around them. So making sure when you're coming into a resident's room that you're in front of them, you know, hi, my name is so-and-so. This is what we're going to do. Telling them what you're going to do, you know, to making them feel comfortable and relaxed in the environment. And they can actually see you versus coming behind them. Hi, my name is Jerry. I'm going to be here today. And they can't see you. They can't feel that comfort, um, you know, so just making sure that our staff and our family members are, you know, knowledgeable of that. Yeah, that's really great. And so uh, that's uh, really interesting about the experience. And I've, I've heard of that. I've not done it myself. Some of the staff here have, but uh, where is it with the put on the the uh, eye uh, equipment so that they actually feel some of the physical sensations uh, that uh, would be similar to someone that's experiencing a form of dementia. Absolutely. Um, with the certified uh, dementia practitioner, you know, you learn different things like, you know, when you serve a resident a meal on a white plate and there's white mashed potatoes on top of that meal and, you know, they're not eating, they're not eating. Well, they can't see that contrast. Mm. Um, you know, we learned to serve on a red plate, you know, that opens, you know, where they can see the plate and then they can see the mashed potatoes and then they, they can eat those mashed potatoes. It's simple. It's simple adapting, um, you know, mechanisms that they teach you that you don't think about, you know, when you're just learning about the disease textbook, you know, this is actually living in the disease. 
That's great. And it's great that you, uh, you know, your staff is trained in, in dealing with all of these nuances. Tell us a little bit more about the lodges where you're an administrator now. I've been the administrator here for two years. My actually uh, first day here was uh, day one of shelter in place. My goodness. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's been a, it's been a good two years. Um, I'm very proud of this organization. We have five facilities in Michigan. Um, I'm proud of the organization. They take a lot of pride in their buildings and in their residents and in their families and take each situation into in, in, into care. Um, they do a lot of training for the staff and a lot of education for the community and families. Um, they like to get involved and that's very important to me. Um, not every person is the same. You know, we all fall in a different, there's not a white and black disease process here. It's all, it's all a gray matter at all all involves into different. And I like that they take that into consideration. Um, they're very caring for their staff, which in turn allows our staff to be very caring for our residents. I, uh, we've had good experiences with the lodges of Durand uh, and uh, we've had lots of clients that have uh, been residents there and uh, just had good reports. And that's, you know, it's always, uh, this is always a difficult time for families trying to figure out the best answers and trying to figure out what's, you know, should we have a care facility? Should we stay home and hire caregivers? Should we hire family members? Um, it's always something to work with. And it's, it's great to have uh, folks that are reliably, that whenever we hear clients, they, they're saying positive things. So we've had very positive experiences at, uh, with our clients at the lodges. Um, Thank you. Back to our topic here a little bit. Um, so we've adapted uh, quickly, and I, we kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, but when when the pandemic hit, we had to learn a lot more technology. And so, so for our, our um, office, pretty quickly, we were uh, learned to have people work remotely. We learned to um, have Zoom meetings. It actually opened up things for us so that we can uh, work with clients that aren't as geographically close to us as, you know, historically. So, you know, we've had clients over in Grand Rapids or up in the UP that wanted to work with us. And traditionally, we wouldn't have been able to do that. But with technology, it seems like all of this is possible. Uh, what were some of the adjustments that you've learned or that you've taught your staff uh, you know, dealing with, uh, to improve quality of care and, you know, trying to deal with the, the, the new environment that we're, we're living in. What are some of the adjustments that, uh, that you've made? Um, for us, I think the biggest thing is to be open. Um, you know, health care before the pandemic is a constantly changing environment um, at a rapid pace. And now it's even more rapid. No, today is not going to be the same as tomorrow with, you know, different guidelines coming out. You know, we just got to remember that we took an oath to be a caregiver and that, you know, whatever situation is thrown at us, you know, we have to learn to be able to be a chameleon and deal with that so we can provide quality of care for our residents. Um, and we can provide them with a safe house um, and, you know, keep them safe, you know, so whether it's, you know, hygiene or whether it's infectious protocol, um, you know, watching more for signs and symptoms of different disease process. Everybody gets so wrapped up in COVID, you know, we forget mm. that there's still other viruses and other diseases out there. So making sure that we're well-trained and, you know, looking for those signs and symptoms. 
And like you said, technology, um, opening their eyes up to technology, you know, you may have to make, you know, a Zoom call, you may have to do a telehealth visit. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, you know, and that's, uh, been a challenging for us trying to, uh, and I'm, I'm sure this is true for, for other organizations too, but occasionally in, in Michigan, we've had where um, most legal documents, then the legal documents that we're typically talking about, like a power of attorney or a will or a uh, healthcare document, most of them have to be signed in person. In fact, the law says um, that you have to be physically see them <laughs> uh, to sign it. And, and that doesn't mean uh, over camera like this. And we were fortunate in Michigan that the, uh, the governor and then the legislature actually made a temporary law that allowed us to do remote signings. Um, but um, uh, that law has expired now and hopefully we get a new one, but it was interesting how working with care facilities like the lodges and others and trying to work around that and sometimes having to stand outside the window and, and we can see them, they have the documents, we're talking over the phone or something because the law requires a, that physical connection uh, to get some legal documents signed. And uh, so how have you uh, seen that as far as the need to, you know, even deal with other professionals or make sure that they're able to, to meet with the, the their lawyer or whoever else that might be needing to get documents signed or things like that. Absolutely. And like I said, it's very important to make sure that you guys are like, they're planning for this, you know, the power of attorney or healthcare documents, DNR statuses, especially right now um, during the pandemic. Um, we actually here, we built um, COVID visit rooms that are completely isolated from the, our other residents. And that allows, you know, a visit in that room six feet apart, um, you know, and it, we are able to, you know, answer the questions and make sure that people coming in are safe as well to gown them up, make sure they're wearing the right PPE as long with our resident, make sure they're wearing the right PPE and be able to handle that situation um, with their elder law attorney or with, you know, a professional that they need to. Um, that's also how we've kind of battled our mental depression with, um, you know, quarantine. Yeah. That's great. I, that's a that's a fantastic idea. Uh, I, I really like the fact that you guys did that. Um, it's it can be uh, uh, a little unnerving sometimes. We did the same thing where while well, we have the alternative of now having meetings that aren't face to face, a lot of our clients still like to have that face to face meeting. So we have all these sneeze guards all over our office now, which seems kind of odd to walk into a law office and then you have plexiglass between you and, and the client. But, uh, you know, we're just trying to make sure we follow all those safety rules and things like that. So it's it's uh, interesting to see uh, and that, that I really like that idea of having the, the room for that. Absolutely. Um, one of the things I think we should address, and you know, certainly something that made the news a lot on a national level, and we heard a lot about it in New York, and you know, some in Michigan about you know the mass infections that hadn't you know gone through a number of care facilities, especially you know some of the ones that are um, like you say skilled care. That this was a big issue, and um, you know, sometimes the law was. Well, send them to the skilled care. And I know you're not currently in skilled care, but you have some previous experience with that. Um, and I'm sure that there was some level of that throughout every care setting and home care agencies too. And my question on that is, how have you 
um, dealt with that and helped your team and your employees deal with that and just, you know, kind of stay positive and not uh, uh, resilient uh, to, to all of the difficulties that that can bring up. And you never know from week to week whether there's going to be another outbreak and things like that. How have you, uh, how, how you guys have been getting by? <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of negativity, you know, along with this pandemic. Um, so, you know, we, we preach positivity absolutely here. Um, the biggest thing is we make sure that, you know, our staff is mentally taken care for themselves. Um, we offer, you know, different options as to free counseling um, with, you know, different professionals. We offer, um, you know, breaks and, like I said, training and education, um, you know, making sure that they feel appreciated. Um, you know, we know that they're the caregiver in the family at times. Um, you know, we want to make sure that they stay safe too. Um, they know that there is a risk being a healthcare professional working the front lines, you know, skilled, skilled nursing definitely is working the front lines. Um, so we try to prepare the best we can. Um, we try to, you know, prepare for outbreaks and know they're coming, um, whether that's setting off a wing that, you know, four or five rooms for if we do have positives, you know, um, teaching staff different infectious um, protocols, making sure, you know, they're wearing the mask, washing their hands. Um, and following the guidelines for all viruses. Yeah. Universal precautions. Well, that's that's great to hear that you've been, uh, you know, protecting your staff too, because I know, uh, you know, that's something, and I think every business, every organization has had to do that to provide a little bit of more emotional support and, and backup for just having to deal with all the things and all the changes and uh, all the stress that can come about from uh, the last couple of years here. Well, I'd like to open up the floor for some question and answer from the audience if we have any questions. And I mentioned earlier, we have our producer, Savannah. So the, the voice uh, without a face right now, because she's off camera, but she's going to maybe, if there's any questions, she'll read us the questions and then we can respond to those. Yes. Hello. I am Savannah, the voice in the background. Um, we do have some questions. One question was submitted ahead of time. Um, but we had Carol and she said that her husband has recently been diagnosed with dementia. Um, she's feeling overwhelmed already. And so she right now is his primary caregiver. Um, she's looking at options. And so she just wants to know what steps she should be taking now um, to prepare for, uh, you know, the potential of uh, long term care. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Your thoughts on that, Jerry? Absolutely. Um, the best thing that I can tell her to start to do is to prepare to make sure, you know, that she's got all of her legal documents um, ready to go. Um, make sure that you are out there touring all different types of facilities in all different locations. Ask as many questions you can. Tour at multiple different times throughout the day. You may have to tour a couple of them two or three times until you find one that you feel comfortable with. We, uh, it's a great question, and uh, we have a presentation that we started doing, which I'm sure will come out to the lodges and do it at some point once things open up to be able to do that. But uh, the presentation is titled, uh, what are the three steps you need to take, you immediately need to take once you have a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's. So we had the three steps, and it's an hour and some presentation, but I'm just gonna summarize the three steps that we talk about. One is exactly what you said. Uh, well, it's pretty much all of the things that you said, but the first one is that we break it down into the three steps is to make sure that you have your legal uh, uh, arrangements in order. And we talk about sort of dementia specific uh, legal arrangements. 
The issue is this is not really something that is taught in law school very much to deal with dementia, to deal with things like government benefits like Medicaid or veterans benefits. So sometimes the legal documentation, you might have a great, fantastic lawyer, but if they aren't one that really focuses on the dementia issue or the long-term care issue or Medicaid or veterans benefits, a lot of times we find that there's some additional language or additional information that we're going to want to include in things like your power of attorney. It's so, so important if we're still able to get a power of attorney. If not, then we might have to go to court and get guardianship or conservatorship. Step number two is develop that team. So, and, and we really need to think about that team. In other words, we think about uh, the, you know, obviously the legal is part of it. The healthcare is part of it. Make sure that we've got a, a doctor that's on board with this and is helping and talking to us about the, the effects of dementia. A lot of times um, the, your family practice lawyer or doctor might get you to a neurologist, which is great. We want to see that. We want to, you know, have that neurologist in the in the team. But I really like um, to have the, the family work with the gerontologist too. And sometimes the gerontologist can take kind of a big picture look at it because whereas the neurologist is looking at the brain and the cardiologist is looking at the heart and the podiatrist is looking at the foot, the gerontologist kind of looks at the big picture and often is... Um, a little bit more whole person, you know, centered. And I, I really do think that that's part of the team that we should develop financial, you know, sometimes we're going to be looking at, okay, what are the finances? How do we make sure we have access to them? How do we make sure we have the, you know, if you're not able to pay your bills, who's going to pay those bills? Yes, there's a legal part of it, but there's a financial part of it too. We, if, if depending on, you know, the resources that you have, we may, we, we may need a, a financial person in that team. And then the caregiving part of it is let's let's look at our options for caregiving. So if we're going to be looking at home care, what are we you know what are our options? Are we looking at family? Are we looking at home care agencies? Should we start at looking at independent living, which is more of a protective environment? So home is fine, but you're not getting much exposure, and you're off by yourself. And to get caregivers in, you know they got to drive to you. Whereas an independent environment, like uh, you know one of the options that you have at the lodges. You got caregivers close by. They don't have to just come there for three hours at a time. It's much more flexible, much more protected. You know, so look at the environment, look at the caregiving options. So that's step two. And step three is um, having the contingency plan. So I don't know if you experienced this, Terry, but in my experience, most families that are dealing with this, first of all, there was maybe a little bit of denial at first. Maybe it was, oh, everything's going to be fine. They're just getting a little older. But sometimes they come to that conclusion and often it is because of a crisis, because of a broken hip, because of a hospital stay, because of somebody wandering away and the neighbor's calling or the police is calling or somebody like that. But the idea is to get in front of that. And so to get in front of the other shoes that might drop, the other bad things or crises that could happen, like, well, what if mom dies? When dad's the one with dementia, what if mom dies? What if mom can't care for dad anymore? What if mom gets sick? What if, um, uh, you know, there's a stroke? What if the, the caregiving uh, needs, you know? So dealing with those, that step three is kind of having, and again, it's helpful using your professionals, that group of professionals we had in step two to come up with this plan to say, okay, we don't want to be behind the, you know, behind it again. We don't want to have this crisis there's probably going to be another crisis and I don't mean to be gloomy, gloomy gus about this, but there's probably going to be another crisis. So let's make sure that we're prepared for that rather than, 
everybody kind of having to drop everything and, and fly to Michigan to, to deal with it or whatever. And so um, those are our three steps. We also, I'll just do a little uh, quick promo. We just did a book. It's called You're Not Alone Living with Dementia. So anybody that's interested in the book, feel free to get a hold of us. We'd be happy to get you uh, a copy of the book. And it really kind of goes through a lot of stuff we've been talking about here. Awesome. We uh, also have another question, um, and this is for both of you, but how do you each find the balance between advocating for elders and your relationships with them during these very personal times and these very personal situations? Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's very hard. Like I said, you know, you, you're the caretaker, but you're also the family and the advocate. Um, we have to just do what's right for our patient. Um, you know, what's right for them right now? What What's going to be the best avenue for them to keep them safe and as healthy as we can? Yeah, um, it's a really a difficult question, honestly, because yeah. um, the on one hand, it's helpful for when I'm dealing with this, uh, with a client, um, it's, uh, it's helpful for me to maintain a little bit of a distance because then I can be that outside that, that, that can kind of stay out of the emotions of it. And I can give better advice that way. And, and so it's difficult when it is family, for example. So I've gone through this personally in the last two years and the idea is it's much more difficult. It's much easier for me to give advice to a stranger and, and dealing with all of these things. It's much more difficult when it's personal to you. It's much more difficult to, uh, to uh, say, okay, but we know what the right answer is. And it's one of the things that people either like about me or dislike about me, but I tend to be pretty direct and blunt, and um, which I, I think is necessary in this. And you can't always do that with family. And so my only advice, and it's what I, what we, you know, what I had to rely on, even I, and I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm working with families that have dealing with long-term care and dementia for years, I had to get an outsider. I had to have another professional come in and be able to give us advice um, with that sort of somewhat of distance perspective, because it's so difficult if you're trying to deal with the family and you have the family meeting, but there's so much, you know, emotion in it. It's your spouse, it's your parents, you know, those types of things. Then it's very, very helpful. And to take, frankly, to tamp down some family conflict or family, um, you know, concerns by getting an outsider to come in and, and kind of give the more, um, uh, you know, take a step back and kind of look at it and say the things that we're all probably thinking, but don't want to be able to say out loud because they're not always positive. And so, um, you know, a lot of times we're going to want to say, we just published a blog recently, Savannah, that said, uh, um, you know, don't careful what you promise, because I think most of us have promised our parents that they'd never go, they'd never need a nursing home, whatever that not meant to us at the time. And so nursing home is kind of a term of art that we use, but a lot of folks look at it as you're never going to have to leave your home. Well, that's a promise you can't keep. That's just some promise you can't keep. And so it's difficult to take, you know, kind of step back and say, well, we know what the right answer is. It's not safe to leave mom alone at home anymore. It's not safe uh, if she might wander away in the middle of the night or in the winter or things like that. We know that answer, but we can't, you know, we can't. Um, because of the emotions and the 
perspective, you know, we can't, uh, it's hard for us to say that out loud or come to that conclusion. That's why it's helpful to bring in outside professionals. And that's actually something that we do for our clients. And I think that's probably something that you have to, when, you know, you have families and they're not so sure, sometimes you just have to, you know, be direct with them and say, okay, well, how safe is it for mom at home and things like that? Absolutely. Um, and I think our last question today, um, we can just sum it up. And this is a short question, but a loaded question. Um, what is one thing that you wish you could say to a family who is struggling with this right now, whether it's the decision to put their loved one into long-term care um, or maybe to just evaluate the care that they're currently, currently receiving? What's one thing that you just would like to say to that family? I think for uh, me on my side is, you know, I'd like to tell that family member, you know, make sure that you are taking care of yourself as well. Um, making sure that if you're going to be the caregiver, that you're giving yourself a break um, and, you know, and know that if you can't be the caregiver, that doesn't mean you're failing them. It means you're giving them the care that they need. Yeah, just to add on to what Jerry said, one of the things that we often experience is that instead of the family now being feeling like they're, you know, the caregiver and they're no longer the, the spouse or the child, once we can bring in outside care or go into a care setting that's properly taking care of them, they can go back to being the spouse. They can move back to being the, the, the daughter because they're not having to clean them up. They're not having to, you know, shower them. They're not having to have that constant burden of, of care. That's why we we have the caregivers in the care setting and we can go back to, to visiting and looking at old pictures and, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 and having it be uh, more like that. Um, my other, my first thought is that make sure that you have resources that can explain the long-term care um, environment. There's so many options. If you try to just go to the uh, Council on Aging book and sort through it, there's hundreds of options there. And you really have to understand sort of the difference between independent living and assisted living and memory care and skilled care and adult foster care and uh, daycare and home care. And, and, and from our perspective, not only do you have to understand the differences between the two, but what other, what programs will work with them? You know, there's all these different government programs that might help provide some care, like the veterans benefit or the um, there's veterans health services, or there's, you know, the PACE program or the waiver program. And there's all these different programs and they don't all work in every setting. And so it's really important to get that information. It's hard to get. That's something that we provide to folks, but that would be my, my first instinct to say, okay, in order to start really getting dealing with this, you really got to get clarity on what the long-term care field looks like and, and not just, you know, narrow in on, well, we got to keep mom home no matter what. We really have to have the, that might be the answer, but you need to know what the other options are. And even if that is the answer, you always want to have a backup plan. Right. That's that's great advice, Jerry, because what happens all the time is people say, okay, we're going to keep home, mom home no matter what. And then you know, it doesn't take long. It, again, I kind of prod people a little bit. It doesn't take much prodding to say, but um, what if dad died? Oh, yeah, well, we couldn't keep mom home then. Uh, or, you know, well, what if she needs a two-person assist? 
yeah, we couldn't keep mom home then. You know, what if, you know, this, there's just, there's so many different things. And so I think that's a fantastic instinct to say, hey, we want to keep her in this environment, but you're right. You have to have, well, but what if, you know, what if yeah. next and, and have a plan for that. Well, great. I uh, This is a, an exciting first for us to have the advice from your advocates. I appreciate Jerry Birchmeyer uh, helping us out on our very first uh, uh, broadcast. Uh, this is uh, something that we hope to do more often and uh, we'll, we'll have, uh, hope they have a pretty consistent schedule going forward. So we appreciate you joining us and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see you next time too. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit mannerlawgroup.com.